Hi there, my name is Danny McGinnis and I'm a medical student at the Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. I've had the great pleasure of working with Loyola Street Medicine with the Chicago Street Medicine Group, as well as a board member of the Stritch Homeless Outreach Coalition. Thanks for joining us on our podcast. Today, I wanted to discuss the criminalization of homelessness, and I'm lucky to have a guest speaker come and talk through some of these issues with me. But first, I wanted to go over some information and background to help everyone and myself understand the topic we're discussing. One favorite quote I have from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition states that criminalization is the most expensive and least effective way of addressing homelessness, which wastes scarce public resources on policies that ultimately do not work. So today I'd like to discuss the homelessness and the law, understand what laws affect homeless communities and why they exist. I'd also like to lean into the financial cost. Uh, What are the costs to uphold these laws against homeless communities? Number three, I'd like to investigate the overall negative impact that these laws have on people experiencing homelessness. And lastly, I'd like to learn the alternatives to handcuffs. What are some examples of policies and programs that work to solve homelessness rather than punishing people? So for some background, criminalization of homelessness refers to the policies, laws, and local ordinances that make it illegal, difficult, or impossible for unsheltered people to engage in the normal everyday activities that most people carry out on a daily basis or in activities that help make them safer. There are many laws that criminalize homelessness that are very overtly in local, state, and national codes. The most common laws against life-sustaining behavior are against camping, sleeping, or lying down in public, which 50% of American cities prohibit camping or lying in certain areas. They prohibit begging or panhandling. 76% of cities prohibit begging in particular places. They have laws against encroachment, which are storing private property in public places. Against living in vehicles, 43% of cities have laws against sleeping in their cars overnight. And against food sharing. 9% of cities ban organizations from feeding people in public. So with all these laws, I think it's important to step back and understand why is homelessness criminalized. I think the first thing is that there is increasing homelessness. The widening affordable housing gap puts more Americans at risk of experiencing homelessness. There's also been a decline in resources. Shrinking resources inhibit state and local governments' abilities to address the root causes of homelessness. And lastly, there's community conflict. Communities that don't have appropriate shelters and resources experienced increased calls to authorities and enact laws to keep homelessness out of the public's eyes. So with an increase in homelessness and a steady amount of criminalization, this might be obvious, but the National Homeless Law Center tracked laws criminalizing homelessness in 187 U.S. cities from 2006 to 2019 and found that there's been a steady increase in criminalization of homelessness across the United States. 48 out of 50 states have some form of law criminalizing homelessness, and bans on camping, bans on sitting or lying down, bans on loitering, and bans on living in vehicles in cities have only increased since 2006. You may ask why. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition states that laws criminalizing homelessness are rooted in prejudice, fear, misunderstanding, and serve the businesses and the house neighbors over the needs of the people experiencing homelessness in our communities. So with all these laws, I thought it was important to look at the specifics to understand things that might be happening in our communities or cities that we've lived in, known and loved. So looking at a hall of shame, one city, Sacramento, has some of the worst practices in that they practice aggressive sweeps and banishment of homeless people and encampments in the cities. In Redding, California, another Northern California city, they've proposed involuntary detention and incarceration of homeless people. In Kansas City, Missouri, they have strict food sharing regulations that prevent feeding of people experiencing homelessness in public places. The state of Texas passed a law that takes away funding from any local entity that discourages enforcement of any public camping ban. 
Ocala, Florida also practices aggressive homelessness policing. And then Wilmington, Delaware has improper use of the no contact or stay away orders that ask homeless individuals to stay away from certain parts of the city. One thing I think it's really important to mention is that there have been absolutely zero cities in the United States that have, under, have ever ended homelessness using any of these criminalization policies. So with that wild success rate, you might wonder, why are we paying money and how much are we paying for criminalization to occur? At a simple level, I think it's easy to compare the per person costs. If we're thinking about a per person booking an arrest, that would cost $104 per person. One night in jail would cost $87 per person. Compared to that, one night for one person in the shelter is $28, which is less than the $191 that would cost for someone to be arrested and spend a night in jail. Okay, but now let's think about it over the course of a year. Per year, if we were to criminalize a single person suffering from homelessness through enforcement of unconstitutional anti-handling laws, hostile architecture, police raids of homeless encampments, or general harassment, it would cost $31,065. Conversely, the cost of providing them supportive housing for that one person would be $10,051. We're spending an extra $20,000 per year per person to engage in this aggressive anti-homeless agenda. That seems like enough harm caused from a fiscal perspective, but I think it's also really important to understand what are we doing to the people experiencing homelessness and how is this impacting them? Unfortunately, criminalizing homeless communities multiplies many of the obstacles that perpetuate homelessness. For example, any fines, fees, or arrests cost money to the individual, and imposed fines and incarceration for failure to pay them can prolong the amount of time that someone will experience homelessness and prevent people from actually achieving housing. It also harms public safety. Criminalization diverts law enforcement and clogs criminal justice resources. It also erodes trust between people experiencing homelessness and the law enforcement, leading to higher risk of violent interactions. Finally, it has significant negative impacts to public health. Criminalization and sweeps of homeless encampments disperse individuals with no centralized or established place to sleep, practice hygiene, or discard waste. Additionally, it appears in many cases that criminalization of homelessness and the laws against people experiencing homelessness are often unconstitutional. In a case, Martin v. The City of Boise, the Ninth Circuit Court stated, as long as there is no option of sleeping indoors, the government cannot criminalize indignant homeless people from sleeping outdoors on public property on the false premise that they had a choice in the matter. This also goes against our Eighth Amendment. Criminalization of homelessness is constituted as cruel and inhumane treatment against the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution and violates our obligations under the Convention Against Torture and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Now, the goal is not to get you depressed. I think it's important to understand that there are lots of alternatives and tons more opportunity for individuals like yourselves to come up uh, and advocate for alternatives to criminalizing homelessness. One alternative you might hear of is the Housing First model. The Housing First model is an evidence-based, cost-effective approach to ending homelessness for the most vulnerable and chronically homeless. The Housing First model prioritizes housing and then assists individuals with access to health care and other support uh, that they may need. Cities across the United States have actually ended chronic homelessness using the Housing First model. The first to do so was Bergen County in New Jersey, which ended chronic homelessness in 2017 using the Housing First model. Similarly, Lancaster, Pennsylvania ended chronic homelessness, and Rockford, Illinois had the same outcome.
Ultimately, 78 communities across the United States have ended veteran homelessness using the Housing First model. But as we likely know, housing, especially recently, has been really difficult for anyone to get. So here are some ways that we can achieve housing for unhoused and unsheltered communities. First are low barrier emergency shelters. These temporary housing helps shelter individuals from the environment and connects them to resources that they can use and bring them in closer to permanent housing. Second, there are innovative housing methods that can be practiced, like tiny homes, safe parking, authorized encampments are temporary ways to shelter unhoused populations safely. There's also a way to build pathways to housing. By avoiding relying on the police as first responders, we can stop sweeps and establish encampment to housing pathways. And then ultimately, we need to prevent homelessness, support tenants against eviction, discriminatory housing laws, and rent increases that force individuals into unsheltered situations. So to wrap up, criminalization of homelessness is increasing. Laws criminalize homelessness increase despite evidence that proves that they're costly and ineffective. And it is costly. A community can cut costs by 68% by opting to solve rather than fight homelessness. Again, it is ineffective and harmful and sometimes illegal. Punitive responses to homelessness do not solve root causes. They exacerbate homelessness and go against U.S. and international law. And lastly, only housing solves homelessness. That might be obvious, but housing first models are more humane, more effective, and more permanent solutions to homelessness as a problem. Next, we have the opportunity to speak with Michael Durham. Michael describes himself as an abolitionist theologian for housing justice. He works currently at the Funders Together to End Homelessness, but spent the last eight years at the National Healthcare for Homelessness Council, working as a community engagement manager, a technical assistance manager, and the membership and development coordinator. His career has been committed to ending homelessness, as well as structural racism and oppression. Thanks, Michael, for joining us. Would you be able to tell me a little bit about your background? Sure. So my name is Michael Durham. My pronouns are he, him, his. Um, I was raised mostly in Nashville, Tennessee, um, and uh, I worked for about nine years for the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council. Uh, so primarily helping uh, organizations who serve people experiencing homelessness provide better health services, increase access, and ultimately advocating for healthcare justice uh, and health policies that contribute to an end to homelessness, including single-payer healthcare, uh, and other systemic reforms um, that actually stop people from becoming homeless in the first place. That's great. And recently, I, I moved over to Funders Together to End Homelessness, which is an association of foundations and other philanthropic organizations that focus on housing justice. That sounds like a lot of you know high-level working within organizations to try and affect wide-scale change. What's your experience working uh, closely with homeless communities? Yeah, I primarily have do that in sort of my personal life, um, in addition to working pe- with people who have been homeless, who are on our boards of directors and community advisory boards of the different organizations I've worked for. I have been on the board for the last several years uh, with uh, a, a small nonprofit, a startup nonprofit here in Nashville called uh, The Village at Glencliff, which provides trans- transitional housing and medical respite or otherwise known as recuperative care to people experiencing homelessness who are ready to be discharged from a hospital stay, but have nowhere to go. So in Chicago, uh, the Boulevard is is an example of a program program like that. And so my interactions with people who are homeless are primarily through that and just hearing day to day the struggles that they face from a medical perspective that has affected their housing and how their lack of housing has affected their health experiences. 
Yeah, absolutely. It becomes like a chicken and the egg cycle of yeah. influencing each other. We, as a as a group on campus, there's the Stretch Homeless Outreach Coalition, and we work really closely with Housing Forward, which is um, a you know temporary housing, transitional housing, and then respite care uh, organization as well. So I'm wondering if you've experienced or you've witnessed any criminalization policies against homeless communities in practice. Yeah, so here in Tennessee, they recently passed statewide legislation uh, that bans camping um, or sleeping and all. It's actually extremely broad, could really outlaw and even just falling asleep uh, in public spaces in a park. And that's the statewide legislation that was actually introduced in response to, uh, at least in part, to some organizing and some protests that were a part of community-wide uprising in response to George Floyd's murder, which of course included camping out at like the state capitol, but has huge implications. And indeed, they are conscious of this. So it is discriminatory, both in its intent and its impact, affecting people experiencing homelessness. And so that has made it a felony basically, to be homeless in public property. And we're still in the early days since the passage of that legislation, but we're really concerned here in Nashville in particular on how that's going to be weaponized against people experiencing homelessness, majority of whom are Black and brown people, and it's no accident. Legislation would not be so cruel if not for the racism that is imbued in state politics and elsewhere. Absolutely. So you haven't yet seen that play out in sweeps well, we already had uh, prolific uh, sweeps uh, across the city, so this just gives uh, an extra tool to, to to law enforcement and others. We are we have seen uh, that people who are living outside are even more fearful, and it's ca- counterproductive in so many ways because it makes folks uh, hide, uh, be more reluctant to interact with professionals, especially especially those who are uniformed. Um, and so then we're not getting the outreach services to folks. We're not getting all the the, the clinical service, services, the behavioral health services, uh, the housing navigation, and all the things that we know people need and are asking for uh, because people are more reluctant to interact with those who represent the state. And so it can be really tricky, especially with regard to outreach providers, street medicine providers, the extent to which they are in cahoots with with law enforcement. And, and so that that is becoming an ongoing conversation here. Uh, both here in Nashville and across the country. That's probably frustrating and so many other levels of upsetting, but just everything that you and, and groups do to interact and build connections and bridges to communities to just have those burned by policing. Absolutely. I mean, this work is hinges so much on building rapport and trusted relationships with people who are the most marginalized and because of that marginalization, often the most uh, mistrustful or distrustful, especially of healthcare uh, providers and organizations. So that trust is damaged by the threat of state-sanctioned violence. Mm-hmm. In some of my research on this topic, I was looking into the perpetual of cycles of if someone be- gets arrested for camping in public, they're now spending time in jail and they have fines and fees to pay. And now they cannot use any of the accumulated money or, or resources they have to getting out of uh, an unsheltered situation. Have you sen- seen any of that happening in Nashville? Yeah, um, it's an example of how it's expensive to be poor in this country. And, the, and the, all of those precipitating events, they, they often are caused by expenses. So like medical expenses uh, account for, I think it's 67% of personal bankruptcies, uh, medical debt, uh, medical bills. 
um, which can destabilize your life in so many ways. Uh, your, it, that affects your ability to pay rent and utilities and so many other things. If you're late on utilities, you get fined for that. And so then you owe even more. And so just the cycle continues. And so when, when folks are able to find work, uh, which is really difficult to, to maintain a job when you're sleeping under a bridge, of course, so more people are employed than you might think. Yeah, those those wages are often garnished. Those wages often go to different to, to debt that is owed, which leaves scarcely anything for basic survival needs. And so then you're stuck in poverty. You're stuck with continuing to accrue these these uh, debts and expenses. And we just leave people with only bad options. I think it's I heard it said one time that and it really resonates with me that people in poverty don't make bad choices. They make available decisions. And that's because we only have bad choices when uh, when we're struggling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was just reading, um, there was a court decision over the legality of anti-camping, uh, in public laws. And it was like the ninth circuit court against mm-hmm. the state of Boise. They said, um, succinctly that if there aren't, you know, you can't say that this is a choice when there aren't any other available choices. So you can't outlaw something when there are no other choices for someone to seek shelter. Yeah, and that's that was really important court decision, and we're also seeing this reflected in human rights law across the country. Um, so Leilani Farha, when she was the uh, UN rapporteur on the human rights to decent housing, um, it's some formal term like that, toured the United States, toured encampments in LA and elsewhere, and deemed it a human rights violation. And so the United States government is on the hook from a human rights international law perspective for failure to ensure that basic human right. Uh, so we see some movement in the courts here in the States, but we're also uh, under the, the watch of international institutions as well. Okay, that's interesting. Kind of on the other side, have you seen Nashville or, or any other cities effectively figure this out? No, <laughs> uh, I've not heard any uh, cities effectively figuring this out. There are certainly cities that are uh, doing better than others, and I would draw your attention to all the work of the National Homelessness Law Center, who are really the the champions on on the criminalization of homelessness and, and alternatives to that. Their seminal report, uh, Housing Not Handcuffs, includes uh, some promising practices and indeed a hall of shame of cities that are just making things worse. Communities that are doing the best with regard to criminalization are often creating areas for uh, some call safe sleeping, um, some call sanctioned encampments. I want to be careful because this requires nuance. Um, We, in a certain sense, shouldn't be funding um, these sort of interim programs that aren't housing, that aren't helping people uh, access stability in their housing situation. Um, but they are essential measures in the on an interim basis to just ensure people have a safe place to stay. Some of these, when where they're implemented, especially when they are organized by state governments, can become just another tool of carceral systems. And a lot of advocates, including Western Regional Ad- Advocacy Project or RAP, whose work I would also point you to, consider these just to be outdoor shelters in other ways that are just as just as problematic. So there's there's a lot of benefits from a medical provider's perspective, and I'm reminded of our audience here. The benefit of organizing safe safe sleeping locations or sanctioned encampments is that we know where folks are. 
and there's consistency and we can start to build that trust and rapport and we can start to address some medical services, some of which are really necessary in order for folks to find other stability in their lives. So cities with, with sanctioned encampments are often the more progressive ones, but again, it is more complicated than that. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think on that same note, with sanctioned encampments or encampments that pop up, I know that that triggers a lot of fear that will get uh, laws against camping passed in the first place. What would you say to people or communities that have that fear or um, you know, dislike for individuals sleeping outside in their communities? Yeah. On the one hand, I would validate that concern. You know, I've got two daughters and when folks are outside, I'm a little bit more alert uh, when my children are playing in the yard, uh, when I know that folks are camping right, right beside them. But on the other hand, I know that people experiencing homelessness are far more likely to be the victim of a violent crime than the perpetrator of one, that folks are generally just trying to survive. And ultimately, when we worry about the specific encampment or the specific person outside of our doorstep, while we need to have compassion for that person, we are often losing sight of the broader structural issues. We should be asking ourselves, how do we get this instead? How do we get this person off of my sidewalk um, outside of my house? But instead, how do we address and dismantle the systems that are getting folks to be in such desperation in the first place? So we should be mobilizing and voting and organizing for systemic reform rather than these piecemeal efforts to just get folks out of the way. And I relate this to like when people ask me, like, what about should I be giving money to people who are you know, panhandling on the street? And my response is like, sure, but you're thinking too small. You're thinking too small about this problem. Yes, that individual person's suffering is important, and we should do what we can within the sphere of our influence to help people. And we need to be thinking about the systemic issues, and we're just never going to get to housing justice as we, if we just continue to just move people to the next affordable place. That's a really good way of looking at it. Last question here. We talked about the housing first model as being probably one of the few ways that we can maybe solve this challenge. But I'm wondering in your experience or, or Nashville, what else is working? Are they doing anything else in addition to criminalizing homelessness? Or are they trying to prevent it? Well, there's a lot of conversation in the philanthropic community right now about the prevention of youth homelessness in particular. And I mean to expand that conversation to all different kinds of populations it can get so tricky because we're talking about a future state stopping something from happening that hasn't happened. <laughs> so in the youth context, we're talking about identifying folks who are at risk of losing their housing before they actually lose their shelter. So there's some promising conversation happening around that. I just took a trip to Canada and learned what communities in Toronto and, and surrounding cities are doing to prevent youth homelessness through coordinated strategies across systems that are using school-based strategies and also helping to divert folks who are looking for shelter beds into opportunities that help them heal family conflict or find connections with other kin who are able to take them in and just uh, keep folks from entering the shelter system in the first place which is ultimately preventing so much additional trauma, though once we get to that point, folks have already endured a ton of trauma, uh, which is tragic unto itself. I wanted to say before, but forgot to mention in this conversation of what's working in addition to Housing First, I think 
for service providers, we really need to be thinking carefully about our cooperation with law enforcement and the state that it represents, the carceral system that it represents. We can have a conversation about abolition or defund the police, but even apart from that, we know that it's just ineffective to rely on law enforcement to address some of our problems, including homelessness, for street medicine providers to be working in such partnership with, with law enforcement. And so um, one of the things that I did when I was working at the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council was organize a half-day convening on this intersection of public safety, healthcare, and homelessness. And one of the models that's not perfect, but has shown incredible outcomes and indeed has gotten a lot more popular in the couple of years since George Floyd's murder is this program called CAHOOTS, which is an acronym that stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. Chicago's got a pilot program that's through the Public Health Department that we also featured in that event. And the notion is basically a non-police citizen unarmed response model to various 911 calls uh, that are often the result of people who are living without shelter. 60% of calls that CAHOOTS, uh, whose uh, program started in Eugene, Oregon, 60% uh, of their calls are people experiencing homelessness. So it is, on the one hand, a behavioral health crisis response sort of program that has such bearing on people who are living houseless. And so that's something I'm always encouraging communities to explore. Again, it's not perfect. CAHOOTS does work with the police in some ways. And working with the police for some is essential in order to get these kinds of programs off the ground. Uh, and again, there's lots of healthy debate to be had around those things. But I would exhort all street medicine providers to really be cautious and be critical and listen to what advocates and in particular black and brown organizers are saying about working with the police. That's good advice. And I guess on that note, if you were to give advice to medical students going into various careers in medicine, varying levels of interacting with people uh, in unsheltered situations, what would your advice be as providers? And then what can they do as advocates? Yeah, there's so much to be said, but I would encourage providers to be conscious of the power that they have and what they represent, uh, the institutions that they represent. There's lots to be said and lots has been said lately about the institutional racism and homophobia and transphobia that is descriptive of the healthcare system in general in this country. So don't want to reiterate that entirely, but even a medical student doing outreach represents a state that you may not know necessarily identify with, but others do. And so be conscious of that power uh, and the power differential. Uh, and I think one of the beauties of street medicine, at least in principle, is this ethic of reversing the traditional patient provider power differential to be on the turf, to be at the home, if you will, of the patient and to be approaching this as a student from the posture of a student for the rest of your career and not just as an actual medical student to be listening to, to what they say they need and want and not just assuming that you know the best outcome. And that really asks us to redefine what we mean by success. It asks us to think differently about outcomes and social determinants of health data and, uh, and things that healthcare institutions say that are most essential. So success should be defined by the people that we're serving and not by those who are providing the services. And as advocates, I already alluded to single-payer health care. I think every medical student needs to join Physicians for a National Health Program or other advocacy organizations that are doing the work for universal health care. It is the only policy shift that will get us something close to health equity and to health care justice and ultimately will do so much to help stabilize people's lives so that they don't have to lose their housing in the first place. And in the meantime, if your state hasn't expanded Medicaid, 
that is essential. That's harm reduction. And for that matter, getting on board with other harm reduction services, including needle exchange and even safe consumption sites. These are life-saving interventions that are essential. And without them, people are dying every day. So those are some advocacy points that folks can get on board with. That's great. That's all good advice. A lot to work on, but um, good to keep in mind for all of us. Um, Those are all my questions. I feel like I learned a ton from you and I could keep talking to you, but I also want to be mindful of your time. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Danny. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. And thanks to you all for joining for this podcast on criminalization of homelessness. You can find the attached slides on the Loyola Street Medicine website, loyolastreetmedicine.com. And I encourage you to look into this further on websites like the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty and the National Health Care for the Homeless Council. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a good one. Bye-bye.